0: Welcome to Mind Matters News. Uh, This is Dr. Michael Egner. I I have the uh, privilege and pleasure to uh, have a conversation with my friend and colleague, Dr. Joshua Ferris. Uh, Dr. Ferris is the Humboldt Fellow at the Rural University of Bochum, uh, and his specialty is in religious anthropology. And he recently uh, organized a wonderful conference that I uh, had the pleasure of being involved with called the Conference for Design and the Theology Project. Um, so, uh, Joshua, uh, welcome. And uh, we, we had discussed uh, on our last session the uh, impact of uh, René Descartes' uh, metaphysics and his philosophy of mind uh, in our modern world. And you've written a paper called Descartes' New Clothes, uh, Cartesian Thought and Philosophy, Neuroscience and Theism. Um Could you shed some light on uh, how uh, Descartes' uh, perspective uh, informs modern neuroscience?
1: Yeah, yeah, thank you. Yeah, so I think um, uh, related to this sort of the uh, contemporary analytic uh, philosophy of mind discussions, there are these um, uh, stamps or imprints that uh, Descartes has has left on the discussion. Historically, that uh, seems to kind of um, the wheel kind of seems to come back around to Descartes once again in terms of the kinds of problems that he's dealing with, particularly uh, what we now think of as the hard problem of consciousness and uh, relatedly to the solutions that are being offered that are surprisingly looking more and more like Descartes' solution uh, and his, um, what many or most think of as a kind of robust or strong substantial dualism where the, the there are these property bears that are radically distinct uh, property bears <clears throat> two different types of substances namely the body that has spatial extension and um, the mind that is altogether distinct uh, from the body and uh, whether or not it is uh, spatially located uh, obviously this is a fascinating philosophical discussion um, and as to whether or not uh, thoughts themselves are spatial in some way, uh, the the fact of the matter is is that there's something about the nature of thoughts and thinking and um, properties that are predicable of minds or characteristic of the mind itself are distinct from the body in a way that it makes it um, uh, makes the two different um, and uh, strongly so in uh, in similar ways as as Descartes would and has uh, described in in many of his writings. And so there's a variety of uh, solutions that are on offer today, and and many of them that are really trying to wrestle with the hard problem of consciousness and take the mind seriously. Uh, Many philosophers would say that uh, many uh, philosophers as well as scientists who are uh, scientists of the mind uh, don't take the mind seriously, and in fact uh, are uh, constantly trying to talk about the mind, in ways that reduce it and effectively eliminate the mind or the properties of the mind. And this is something that the philosopher Stephen Priest has talked about when he describes the sort of conditioned paradigm, which is um, prevalent in many of the discussions on the mind, particularly the science of of consciousness uh, discussions that are quite prominent. What they end up doing is Um, They end up functioning according to these conditioned patterns of thought that uh, serve or uh, act in a way or intentionally act in a way toward the mind as if it is just this object, this part, this third person thing that we can know about from an objective standpoint as as an external observer of it. And we can then make sense of it in a uh, rigorously scientific way. And I think uh, some of these dynamics are um, not only present in the analytic uh, philosophical uh, philosophy of mind discussions with their varying solutions that try to reduce everything to one singular set of properties that try to bring together the material and the mental properties. We're seeing these um, heavily sort of philosophical discussions prop up again or come up again in a lot of the it seems in much of the the neuroscience science literature or the neuroscience of consciousness and self literature uh, of which I've only recently in the last year or so um, have started you know trying to digest that literature and uh, there are noticeable traces and patterns that are reflective of similar patterns in. Um, contemporary philosophy of mind that are fascinating, but also, again, point us back to Descartes and the irreducibility of consciousness to uh, matter and the fact of the distinction, this radical distinction between the two types of property bearers uh, that cannot be reducible one to the other. Um, In fact, there's, um, as we talked about before, it seems that there's this implicit distinction between them that is present in the discussions that we're constantly re- uh, wrangling with, and uh, it comes up again in neuroscience as well. But those implicit distinctions um,
0: seem to have come from Descartes. That is, that that it, it is it is not only that Descartes uh, has has struggled, and people who followed in in, in his footsteps have struggled in a, in a very admirable way to to try to make sense of all this but it was the metaphysical framework that Descartes proposed that kind of got us into this mess to begin with. Uh, and and what, what some people have, have called our modern way of trying to understand uh, nature is, is kind of a, 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 a mechanical natural philosophy uh, that, 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 that human beings are, and are in some sense machines. And we try to find the ghost. We 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 try to find what it is in the human machine that accounts for the mind. And of course, Descartes himself believed that animals lacked souls; that they were they were simply you know meat machines. And but the 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 philosophers who worked from a hylomorphic perspective, um, which uh, many if not most of the ancient philosophers did, didn't struggle with this. Uh, this this wasn't a problem for them because in the hylomorphic perspective we're, we're not machines uh and the mind emerges in a rather natural way from uh, the understanding of the human being from from the hylomorphic perspective
1: okay yeah so i think this is interesting so there's uh one way to get at this discussion and um going back to Stephen priest he talks about these uh these sort of conditioned philosophies of which the empirical sciences of consciousness. Would uh, fall into that category. And He says we we need to experience a kind of deconditioning to open up the discussion. Um, but by opening up the discussion, I think it's going to lead us back to Descartes uh, and his kind of substantial dualism. And here's where um, I think I think uh, one of the interesting discussions comes in. There are these two sort of common ideas or key features, you might say, that are reflected in um, some of the neuroscience of self and consciousness literature um, that continue to sort of represent themselves. And that is, uh, one is inter- uh, this notion of internalism. And the other that's that's overlapping and related is this notion of Cartesian materialism. So internalism is this idea that the properties of consciousness or the, the properties of the mind, mental properties, are predicable of uh, physical properties themselves, or neural properties, and um, so there's this conditioned, you you might say, this patterned tendency uh, from uh, neuroscientists of consciousness to simply look at brain scans and and see in those brain scans uh, when they see certain, you know, um, spatial regions or neurons firing to see. Um, mental properties in them, and to predicate mental properties uh, to them. Um, but this underlying philosophical question that I think you know Descartes and the Cartesians are right about is that um, there is this sense in which these two don't touch, and we can't simply predicate mental properties of neural properties because what, what ends up happening, and there's a whole method in here that I kind of spell out in the, the paper that seems um, pretty clear across um, some, some of the more popular, prominent sort of neuroscientists of, of the self. It, that's specific, they, that, that literature. There's a whole vast set of neuroscience literature that I haven't even... Uh, I, and you know a lot more about that. So I'm, I, But particularly those, uh, the neuroscience literature that's trying to deal with the self and consciousness There are these language adoption strategies, these methods that they use in order to systematically sort of excise or root out this sort of Cartesian idea that there are these properties that they are saying are actually predicable of the neural properties and somehow internal to those neural properties. But what they end up doing They end up saying things that not only become sort of philosophically fascinating, but problematic, I think, from a materialist vantage point and maybe even from a monist vantage point uh, more generally, is that uh, they end up predicating these properties and saying that, hey, the mental property is here at this point by um, this, you know, sort of doing brain maps and doing sort of neural connection maps and saying, hey, the, the, the mental property is here at this point but just not in the same way that the neural property is here at this point. And um, so there's this kind of mysterious kind of um, magic trick that they end up doing. And then there's this whole elaborate sort of language adoption strategy so that they can root out speaking about minds as if they are actually minds with these distinct types of properties that are already implicit in our discussion about the the brain and the, 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 the mind itself. And so I think that's problematic, this notion of internalism, um, this this predication of mental properties to the neural properties themselves simply because, say, maybe there's a causal triggering or there's some sort of trigger in uh, the neural map that seems to bring about or causally bring about certain mental ideas or uh, experiences or, or feelings or things of that sort, that that means that that somehow they are identical, they're reducible, they are somehow even 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 spatially present there. If they are spatially present, which I'm not sure about, they're certainly not spatially present in the way that uh, the neurons are spatially present and can be quantified. They're, uh, if they are present, they have to be there present in a different way, which becomes um, interesting and mysterious. It's
0: difficult to, to say that a, a mental state uh, or a mental entity could be spatially present because of several reasons. One is that we, we never refer to the location of a mental entity in a way that matters. That is that you know, Einstein didn't um, distinguish uh, E equals MC squared uh, from when he thought about it in Berlin as opposed to when he thought about it in Paris. Uh, there's, 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 location doesn't seem to play into mental entities in the same way as it does to physical entities. The, uh, we'd spoken in, in our last uh, session a little bit about uh, eliminative materialism, for which I have a great deal of disdain. However, my disdain is because it's materialistic, not because it's eliminative. Uh, I really think that if a materialist is um, consistent in his metaphysics, Um, he has to be an eliminative materialist because you you, you can't have mind in a materialist metaphysic. It just doesn't work. Um, How do you feel about eliminating materialism uh, as as a philosophical
1: perspective? Oh, I think it's, um, yeah. How do I feel? I feel awful about it. I think it's awful. I think it's terrible. I mean, I think, um, I, I mean, I think in, in, in arguably many of the, um, and J.P. Moreland brings this out in some of his works in Philosophy of Mind. I think many of the other sort of reductive uh, physicalist solutions end up, at the end of the day, they just become eliminativist in and, and what they do to the mental properties themselves. They, they end up uh, not capturing or saving uh, the reality of mental properties themselves. But this is, I think, in, in many ways, um, in the examples that I use in the paper many of the neuroscientists of of the self and consciousness are, uh, whether they explicitly say it or not, or even whether they know it or not, they end up adopting a kind of eliminativist approach to mental properties in practice. And um, uh, one of the key examples that I cite, and I, I think, not an unimportant example is is from uh, the famous um, neuroscientist Sean Gallagher who's written on self and consciousness from a neuroscience I guess you call it neuroscience perspective he and um, Kai Vogley, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that name correctly they um, begin their article ironically in this place where they say look we want to Get back to a kind of science, you know, an objective science of the matter concerning matter. Yeah, I'm using that in a non-technical way, uh, a, 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 te- uh, a, a scientific um, understanding of the self and consciousness, and we want to get back to something that's more objective that we can rely on. And and so what they end up saying is, well, well there's ways we can do this, and we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna lay out or map for you, how we can do this as neuroscientists that, that will give us more objectivity and certainty about these things. And then um, right up front, they say, well, this, what this means we're not doing is we're not doing metaphysics. We're not doing the nasty sort of religious uh, theological stuff that uh, you know some people are doing when they talk about souls and stuff like that. It's like a fish saying that 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 that, that, he, that he's not swimming. I mean, you're you're
0: sort of living in this ocean of metaphysics, and even the denial of metaphysics is metaphysical.
1: So there's no way around it. Right, right. Yeah, it, it's fascinating. Um, the kind of delusions. They, I, I, maybe they really believe it, but toward the end they end up uh, citing a uh, Daniel Dennett, who is at least in the literature recognized as being a sort of eliminative materialist of of some sort he eliminates the the mental properties of qualia qualia is just uh, i can't remember exactly how he puts it but it's either it's a it's a fiction or there's a, another common set of literature that says it's an illusion it's it's not real in other words and so they end up adopting a sort of dennett perspective that is uh, deeply metaphysical uh, in its own right, and uh, eliminativist, uh, and they take this just to be the scientific or conditioned perspective, the sign, the objective perspective.
0: The irony, of course, that is, is that uh, Dennett's denial of the reality of qualia. What one has to consider that that I'm sure he still uses Novocaine in the dentist's office. That 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 there is a there there is an undeniable aspect of qualia of the experience. That, uh, that even a clever philosopher like Dennett can't really make go away. Uh, you know, pain still hurts, and uh, uh,
1: it's, it's not an illusion. That's right. Yeah, it's kind of hard to believe. When you're listening to him talk about these things, it's hard, it's hard to believe at one level that he really believes this. The uh, But I, I do have some respect for eliminated
0: materialists in the sense that I think that they have thought Deeply enough about the philosophical contradictions or the logical contradictions inherent to materialist philosophy, that they that they have to jettison something, uh, and they're so wedded to their materialism that they won't jettison that, so they jettison the mind instead. Um, but my problem with Descartes, and it, it, it's it's a problem that goes very deep for me, is I think he caused it. That is that I think the modern mechanical way of looking at the relationship between the mind and the body is a Cartesian error. uh, And the error has, has been catastrophic for our way of understanding uh, uh, the human person. Uh, So I I know Descartes struggled mightily to try to overcome this and people who followed in his footsteps do the same, but it's a problem he caused. Uh, And um, so I, I, I really think that getting back to the hylomorphic under, understanding of reality, of, 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 of matter under, understood as um, uh, instantiation rather than as extension in space, and uh, form understood as intelligibility, uh, is the best way to get at this. You know, that the soul is the form of the body, it
1: solves a lot of problems. Yeah, that's um, that's interesting. I I I, am not sure which direction we should take this. One thing I would say is this: I don't want to give too like I'm not prepared to give too um, strong of a critique of of hylomorphism at the moment. I'm not inclined in that direction, just because I I still to this day, years ago I was a a sort of Thomist dualist of a sort, and uh, then when I sort of started grappling with um, Descartes, Cartesianism, and the Cartesians, and the uh, especially more lately the rigorous Cartesian epistemological literature. I started realizing the radical difference between uh, mental properties and physical properties that seem to be, it seems now to be undeniable to me, um, and 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 that creates well, you might say, it creates problems. It it certainly creates a sort of radical sort of epistemological dualism that is because of Descartes is unavoidable, um, there are just at least at least two different ways of knowing that are, are, are radically distinct, and, and one can't really say much about the other. Um, in particular, um, all these things that we're dealing with, if we were to recognize what was so clear in Descartes, we would realize that neuroscience, in some respects, has little to say about the actual mental properties themselves and what we can know through um, various um, mental ways of knowing, through uh, experience and through first-person reports and first-person ways of knowing. Well, it seems to me that that, that what
0: neuroscience can say about the mind-body relationship is wholly um, correlation. That is that a neuroscientist can say that there's a certain pattern of neuronal activity that correlates with a certain kind of mental activity. And that's perfectly valid. I mean, that's, 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 there's, no, there's nothing wrong with that. And that's, that's, that's good science. When scientists attempt to um, address causation, they are immediately into metaphysics. That is that you you, you can't escape that. And um, if you're attempting to address mental causation or uh, mental effects from physical causes, you couldn't pick a worse place to start than Cartesian philosophy, which separates the two as completely different substances and then makes up a story about the pineal gland. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, is, it, is such, it is wrong in so many ways that if one tries to use that metaphysical framework, you mm-hmm. lose from the very beginning you can't explain causation mental causation so neuroscientists i i encourage have at it you know cor- correlation is a fascinating thing and that's where all the good neuroscience takes place is is in documenting correlations between brain activity and uh, and mental states but once you get into causation you're into metaphysics and we need better metaphysics than we have right now
1: yeah I, well. I, yeah, I'm not sure if I see the problem of um, sort of the Cartesians um, and and what they're uh, what they're proposing in terms of of causation. I think there 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 is an interesting um, and I, I'm I, I think uh, you're getting at something else, and I'm I'm trying to understand uh, understand it. But there there is an interesting sort of inclination or disposition in the literature philosophy of mind literature, David S- Scribina, a philosopher of mind, raises this in one of his um, articles in uh, a collection called contemporary dualism edited by Le- uh, Andrea, Andrea Lavasa and Harvard Robinson. And he argues that there is that materialism is wrongheaded, right? He's, he's clear about that because of the nature of, of qualitative experience and, and, and um, maybe some other things he would grant that are um, not accommodated on any sort of materialism or physicalism. But um, dualism, he says is problematic because, well, because there seems to be this, um, this, this underlying intuition that mental properties and physical properties are somehow uh, unified in a, in a sort of monistic way. And so his intuitions lie with monism, even though he's radically convinced that materialism is a, is a non-starter and it doesn't adequately account for uh, phenomenal quality and and things of that sort. It doesn't take the mind serious enough. And so we need something like a monism. And so I, I wonder if these, these are probably where your motivations lie Um, with him. Now he goes in a more um, panpsychist direction but um, not hylomorphous, but, um, but he certainly has that sort of intuition that these things are united in a way that Descartes separated and we need to get back to the unity of the mental and the physical properties. And it seems to me that, um, yeah, I mean, it just seems to me that at, at the, the most foundational, basic, phenomenological level, the very this is this is something interesting in the case for dualism pointed out by Richard Fermerton that I think is really fascinating. He's making a Cartesian case here at the most foundational level. The fact that we know things about the physical world, the natural world, the natural processes, is because it's already predicated upon this phenomenological standpoint, the fact that we know these things is already mediated by the fact of our phenomenological standpoint in the world, our first-person standpoint, and without that, we wouldn't know the world, and we wouldn't know uh, implicitly that the world and, the phys- and physical bodies themselves are distinct from the phenomenological perspective of which he takes as properly basic within our epistemic wherewithal and that basic Cartesian idea not only seems to press at a me- um, sort of metaphysical uh, distinctions between the sort of Aristotelian framework and the Cartesian framework, but even, even if we don't press that far, it seems to press to this deeper epistemological problem that monisms may have. The, the, uh, of the,
0: uh, the various monistic ways of understanding the mind and the body. and I really do think that the correct way of understanding will be some kind of monistic perspective um i, I have uh, quite a bit of sympathy for idealism particularly for for a uh, subjective I- idealism of Berkeley. um and in modern philosophy of mind idealism is often kind of left out um and h- how do you feel about the uh, idealist way of uh, understanding mind and body is it a real option today
1: yeah so i think like um yeah the sort of subjective idealism sort of barclays idealism i think is really uh is really compelling and and it makes a lot of uh, sense and does a lot of work for us philosophically and it it certainly um there on the other side of the causation problem um from this sort of more epistemological issue on the other side the this sort of a philosophical problem of causation. If there is a sort of interaction problem, which I I go back and forth. I don't. I'm not sure that there is really an interaction problem. Most people think there is an interaction problem. If you if you affirm or assume dualism, a, a sort of substantial dualism of, of Descartes' sort, um, and uh, if there. If that is the case, then I think idealism is a much better solution in dealing with the interaction problem between these two radically different distinct types of substances. I think idealism does a lot of work for us. I think it's elegant, I think it's beautiful, I think theologically it's beautiful because it points on Barclay's understanding, it is simply God's mind communicating to us, and so everything that occurs in the world has a sort of integrity already built into it by the divine mind. And so that's beautiful and elegant. Um, it At one level, epistemically, it, it still is dualistic for us because we're still interacting phenomenologically with the world that we, um, and there is at least this empiricist, in, well, Barclay was an empiricist. There's this empiricist impulse that, uh, again, going back to Richard what that he picks up on, that uh, there are these two radically distinct ways of knowing that for us cannot be um, traversed uh, or solved. Um, I mean, at some highly theoretical way, we might say, well, they they are resolved in the divine mind, but for us, like Barclay was still working with, it seems to me, this sort of implicit dualism that um, Descartes made so clear between these, these distinct types of properties and uh, that uh, implicit mind-body dualism is still present in in Berkeley, um, but the metaphysics there obviously is 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 different. But it's I, idealism is one of those things that it's hard to um, it's hard to critique and, and come to any sort of definitive conclusion about whether or not it's. Uh, Its metaphysics are right from an epistemic vantage point. I'm still um, sort of in the sort of Cartesian world. Sure, my own perspective is sort of
0: drawn from science. Just that that's sort of where I professionally kind of came into these philosophical questions. So I I instinctively, for better or worse, tend to think of it in terms of what how does science inform our understanding of metaphysics? And I came to to Thomistic dualism because In neuroscience, I believe there's a very, very clear distinction between causation of abstract thought and causation of concrete thought. That's a huge topic that we could go into, but there are lots of experiments in neuroscience that show that uh, brain activity vis-a-vis concrete thought correlates very closely with the concrete thought. uh, By concrete thought, I mean perception and memory and sensation and things like that where you're actually perceiving an object. Whereas brain activity correlates uh, very poorly with abstract thought. Uh, And that falls right out of the hylomorphic, uh, Aristotelian, Thomistic way of understanding the soul. So that struck me as being very powerful evidence in favor of the hylomorphic perspective. The idealist perspective, I think, falls very powerfully out of modern physics, particularly quantum mechanics. Um, many years ago, I was taken back. I mean, it just took my breath away when it was pointed out that there's no such thing as an individual electron. That is that, well, for example, when, when we talk about the mass of a subatomic particle like, uh, like an electron, we don't talk about the average mass. Like, it's not as if you measured the, the mass of 100 electrons and took an average. There is only one mass. And electrons cannot be distinguished from one another. You can't put a label on a subtomic particle and follow it around and know it's the same particle a minute later. And that's quite astonishing. And uh, my friend Bruce Gordon with the Discovery Institute and I have talked about this quite a bit. And Bruce is, is, is an idealist, metaphysically. And um, he points out that when you look at the basic structure of matter, when you get down into quantum mechanics, it's all equations. That is, it's, it's not hard little balls flying around. It's concepts. It's mathematical equations. So I think at the most rudimentary level, existence itself is an idea. And even mass itself, like that comes in with the Higgs boson, is still expressed mathematically. So the way I tend to think of it is that um, I think idealism is true. I, I think idealism is, is is a good way to look at things. I think all of creation, including us, are ideas in God's mind. But God's a Thomist. Uh, God, that is, that God structures his ideas in creation in a way that was best understood from the Aristotelian Thomistic perspective. That's my own take on things.
1: Yeah, well, I'm I, again. I'm very sympathetic to idealism, and and for the the, the reasons you point out, in terms of um, at its base level, what, what what do we have in physics? We, I mean, uh, Bruce Gordon has argued in a couple of different places that at its base we have information that's predicable of a mind, not um, hard bits of matter or particles all the way down, um, or even particles that are um, mere uh, sort of material. Um, at some fundamental level, there is information and um, that presupposes a mind. And I, I think um, that's very um, hospitable in a sort of Cartesian frame, uh, particularly because of his Augustinianism. I think Augustine was an idealist of a sort, but he was different a different kind of idealist than, than Barclay was. I mean, he was obviously more of a rationalist in, in his inclinations concerning uh, ideas that exist in the world and frame and shape the world. Um, and so a different kind of idealist, which I'm very sympathetic to. And I think I think arguably Descartes could be there as well. Uh, that would take a lot of historical work. Obviously, we won't, we won't go into that. But I think it, it's um, it's a hospitable place for idealism at that level I think what um, you're pointing out about the tensions within Cartesianism are um, maybe his overall system is uh, globally is uh, problematic in that way. Um, But I think more at a local level in terms of the mind and the body relationship and, and um, possibly the interaction problem that there, there seems to be these, these problems, these insuperable problems that we can't get around if we are Cartesians. And I think uh, it's certainly maybe not as... Ironically, at one level, it is. I think it is intuitive because there are these radically distinct types of properties. But at another level, you might say it's not intuitive because there, there are these types of um, properties that the Cartesian is assuming um, that makes it problematic. Uh, but um, I think there is some... And uh, Cartesians will often make this sort of, uh, give this sort of response. I think they will say that there's often this assumed sort of intentional um, understanding of, of matter on the Cartesian system that makes, makes it such, uh, makes, makes the, uh, that sort of creates a problem for the Cartesian, that the Cartesian says, no, there's no problem here. Uh, it doesn't exist. There is no interaction problem. There are these two distinct types of properties, and that's fundamental to our epistemic wherewithal, and that's where we begin. And But to presume that there is some sort of interaction problem because there are these two distinct uh, types of substances, well, that's presupposing a problem that it's not clear that there is a problem. I think the interaction problem
0: can be solved in a rather straightforward way uh, in the sense uh, of Aristotle's four causes. That is, that if, if, if you think only in terms of material and efficient Causation, yeah. Then you have a problem. Then you have an interaction problem with a mental substance and a physical substance. But if you think in terms of formal or final causation, you can, you know, you you can understand how you know the the formal cause doesn't doesn't involve things moving against one another in a kind of a Newtonian way. Uh, The problem, though, is that what that means is that in order to solve the interaction problem, you have to be a hylomorphist, which sort of takes you out of the Cartesian world. So I think Descartes needs Aristotle to solve his interaction problem, but his metaphysics is is, is a denial of Aristotle. So um, that's why I I think his metaphysics is so deeply misguided is that it takes away the tools that are necessary for even
1: Cartesian metaphysics to work. I'm not strongly committed, but I, I, I I don't see the, um, interaction problem. I see, uh, if there is an interaction problem, as, as one Cartesian has put it, it's a problem for all. Um, and if it's a problem for all, then it's a problem for none.
0: Within the framework of Cartesian metaphysics, how is it possible for a mental substance or a soul substance to interact with a material
1: substance? I I, 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 I get it at one level, but I, I don't. Yeah this is I don't feel the push of of of, of having to reconcile the, the two there's just as there's just a singular relation between the mind and the body itself and that's where that's just where we began I mean I I I struggled with the interaction problem and by the way I'm I'm not completely
0: opposed to substance dualism mainly because I think it is by far the best metaphysical framework for understanding near-death experiences yes and and various mystical i mean it's it's you know that screams substance dualism so um i i hope idealism will rescue me in that in that respect but um but yes so substance dualism i don't think is completely wrong-headed i think there's a, a large body of science that gives it some credibility but i struggled with the interaction problem because i do think it's a problem and I realize that the Aristotelian four causes is the only way I can think of to solve it. But as soon as you invoke Aristotelian four causes, you're into, you're into a, a hylomorphic metaphysics, uh, which kind of takes you out of Cartesian duo, uh, Cartesian physics. So I can't solve the interaction problem without denying the validity of, Cartes- of, of Descartes' understanding of the world.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think um, Descartes' dualism actually at one level does um, press up against a kind of idealism. So there is a unity there, but that's, um, that's a deeper metaphysical issue. I think I, I, I do wonder if I would like to see someone um, work on this. Well, actually, my friend, uh, who, uh, was this, uh, the Irreducibility of Human Personhood, he's a, he's a hylomorphist himself, he's um he's inclined in the idealist direction i would love to see the hylomorphism worked out in explicitly in an explicitly idealist way from my vantage point i think actually cartesianism works quite well with uh, aversion at some fundamental sort of at some metaphysical level it it does uh, find a place in in sort of divine a kind of divine idealism that augustine seems to be committed to well, you, you, you can make a case. I mean, certain people have, of course, that Aristotle
0: himself was a Platonist. <laughs> that is, that, that they all come from Aristotle. So in, in the I, I don't see the hylomorphic perspective as necessarily not a, a form of idealism. Um, I think it is, and if my memory serves me right, J.P. Uh, Moreland uh, used the term, was it a, a deep uh, Hylomorphism—that is—that there, are, there's kind of a superficial kind of hylomorphism that tries to explain, you know, things acting like billiard balls in terms of, of, of hylomorphic theory, but then there's a deeper hylomorphism, for example, that understands matter as pure potency, as pure potentiality. It's kind of as potentiality and act rather than uh, matter and form. Um, and
1: on that deeper kind of hylomorphism, that, I think that's quite idealistic. May, yeah, yeah, maybe. Uh, yeah, at the end of the day, I think it's a it's a it's a viable uh, a program and project. I think it's um, I, I think uh, because of well, because of the radically distinct natures of substances that um, furnish a ground for uh, uh, the separability of the person from the uh, from the body itself. I think Descartes' dualism does a better job. I think also in terms of the uh, the epistemological sort of concerns that are raised earlier about the nature of um, the mind and the body uh, or properties of, of the mind and then distinct properties of the body, I think uh, Cartesianism is probably true. And then there's this whole other question that we sort of touching upon, and that's the nature of intentionality as as being a fundamental um, mark of the mind or one of the markers of the mind uh, like uh, privileged access, that I think uh, a sort of Cartesian framework, both in terms of his metaphysics and epistemology, are a more conducive sort of hospital, hospitable home for those sorts of um, those sorts of experience, uh, those sorts of realities that we seem to have access to when we uh, reflect deeply upon our own phenomenological um, uh, stances or places in the world. But I do think maybe the challenge, and I'm not sure if it's a problem, the challenge for the Cartesian would be uh, there, there is this sort of intuitive, maybe even common sense understanding that the body supplies some sort of information to the mind uh, about the mind mm-hmm. that is uh, maybe a challenge or harder to make sense of on Cartesianism. I'm not sure if it's a problem. It's just harder.
0: Yeah. Uh, but I, my sense is that in order to understand that interaction between matter and soul, you have to go out of out of Cartesianism. You need metaphysical resources that Descartes hasn't provided. Um, so why stay in Cartesianism? Uh, that 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 has been my uh, my perspective. Is that it, it seems that um, I think I think it was just a mistake. Uh, it, it 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 doesn't mean that there are not very important valid things that Descartes said but his metaphysical project as a whole I think is just misguided.
1: yeah 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 no I understand I understand where you're coming from I think that's interesting I think uh, I think this overall I would I, I'd be interested to think or hear what you think about sort of the theistic implications from Aristotelianism because it seems to me that sort of the Cartesian framework, Um, Or Descartes' framework that he's coming from, which is very Augustinian, provides us with a really nice, attractive way of thinking about the sort of what is fundamental or foundational to the world that has implications for theism itself. And uh, I think, um, I mean, I'm, I'm inclined in that more Augustinian, even Platonic way that Descartes was. Um, in contrast to sort of the Aristotelian framework that I think even John Calvin was. He's inclined in these ways more so. And I think, um, I think that's an interesting uh, line of, of, of research and exploration.
0: Yeah, I, I think what Descartes got right was his Platonism. I think platonic, the, the, the Platonic framework, I think, is basically correct. And so I think what Descartes got right was the extent that he was a Platonist. Uh, but I think he got a, a lot wrong and got a lot misguided. And, uh, so I, and I think Barclay, uh, as, as people who come at the metaphysics from a, a Platonic standpoint, was much closer to the truth. Uh, and uh, it, what, in some sense, what I really reject is, is mechanical philosophy, is an understanding of nature and of living things, as, as uh,
1: machines of some sort. And uh, I think that's extremely misguided. Do you, do you think that um, uh, some Cartesians are, argue for this unavoidable sort of Cartesianism, this unavoidable Cartesian cogito that we've talked about or talked around? And do you think that uh, Aristotle's perspective well, – let me step back. I, it seems to me that the cogito uh, that Descartes uh, develops, especially in the Meditations, leads him very quickly to the conclusion that God, um, the soul and God are so intimately tied together in his framework and his thinking. And, and really, he, he just really looks Augustinian here in terms of how he, uh, especially Augustine in, in the confessions and things that I think, um, uh, how do we get at the soul? We get it through the cogito. And that cogito is um, a clear and distinct idea that we have about the nature of, of the mind itself and the properties that minds have uh, that are characteristic of it, that signifies or points us directly to God. Something like what J- John Calvin in his Institutes picks up on at the beginning of the Institutes, he starts having this reflection. And he, he sounds very Augustinian in that way And that he's saying, there's such an emphasis upon the immaterial that is very Platonic, that can only make sense in this wider context of God Himself. But how we work out the that sort of foundational metaphysical level, it seems the, it seems they're so intimately tied together, which is which is basically the sort of Cartesian idea. But it, but it, it seems to me that. Barclay
0: cut at that relationship between, uh, you know, human experience, or human ex- ex- existence and God in a way that for me is much more satisfactory. That is that, you know, that with his subjective idealism, the, the the idea that all that exists is spirit and perception, that things exist for us only as perceptions. Uh, it doesn't mean that, that they don't, that physical things don't exist, but just that their existence is a perceptual existence and that way of looking at it I think answers um, even questions in quantum mechanics a, a very good example is um, the observer effect in quantum mechanics that um, uh, that uh, a, a that an object in nature doesn't exist um, with defined characteristics until it's observed uh, that is until you have collapse of the quantum waveform uh, which is an, which appears to be a very solid finding of quantum mechanics, but extremely difficult to understand physically. Um, however, um, if we uh, understand all of creation as a perception in God's mind, then even when no human being is observing the moon or any physical object in the, in the universe, that object still exists because God observes it. So I, I, I just think that Barclay... Takes things to a much deeper and much more satisfactory level than uh, Descartes
1: did. Yeah, I think those are good points about this. This sort of um, the material being some, somehow uh, perspectively dependent. Uh, I, I would I would really ha- uh, like to explore more uh, developed Augustinian idealist frameworks uh, and see how how well they can accommodate what Berkeley was doing, where they're more rationalist in their understanding. And then Barclays, of course, more empiricist, and the sort of uh, examples you gave do seem, at one level, to lend credence to sort of Barclays idealism over and against the Augustinian framework that Descartes inherited. I'm not like sold on it. I'm not overly convinced, but I think I see the I see the um, the, uh, the the sort of evidential um, weight that I, is I'm sympathetic to on the Berkeleyan view.
0: This has been an absolutely fascinating discussion, uh, Joshua. I, 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 I thank you very much. And we should talk about more more of these things. It's a fascinating topic. So um, uh, thank you to all of our listeners uh, at Mind Matters News. I've been uh, speaking with uh, Dr. Joshua Ferris. Uh, and uh, uh, please join us uh, for future podcasts. Thank you. <music> This has been Mind Matters News. Explore more at mindmatters.ai. That's mindmatters.ai. Mind Matters News is directed and edited by Austin Egbert. The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the speakers. Mind Matters News is produced and copyrighted by the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence at Discovery Institute.